Welcome to IBS Chat from the IBS Patient Support Group. I'm Jeffrey Roberts, the IBS expert and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group website and social media platforms and creator of World IBS Day, held every April 19th. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome at age 16 and I've lived with IBS for over 25 years. It's my mission to educate people living with irritable bowel syndrome and to raise awareness about research and treatment options and what it's like to live with IBS. The IBS Patient Support Group is a community to inform and support irritable bowel syndrome sufferers and can be reached at ibspatient.org. Supporting IBS patients is something that I think of every day because the quality of life of an IBS patient and those that support them is very important to me. I had the opportunity to share my IBS story and advocacy journey with some students at Tufts University School of Medicine. I was interviewed by Dr. Libby Bradshaw, Patient Experience Threads Director and Assistant Professor, Public Health and Community Medicine. Dr. Bradshaw's session with the students was to focus on the patient experience of IBS and abdominal pain. She thought it would be interesting for the students to hear from a patient advocate who would be able to share their own experience and that of others. I was very pleased to share my early years of being diagnosed and how I began becoming a patient advocate. I also touched on my IBD diagnosis later in life and how IBS and IBD are different for me. We speak about the stigma that IBS patients encounter from family and the medical community, as well as a doctor's perspective and what I believe is important for medical students to know. Here's my story introduced by Dr. Bradshaw. What we're gonna talk about now uh, with uh, Jeff Roberts, who is a founder of the Irritable Bowel Syndrome Support Group and has gone on and done some uh, advocacy activities and initiatives that have really allowed him to both learn more about uh, the condition that he has, but also to advocate for uh, uh, patients and the community of people who have uh, irritable bowel. Um, uh, so uh, this is an incredibly common condition, uh, and uh, Jeff, uh, everyone has lots of different, different manifestations of their own condition. But Jeff, I wonder if you'd start uh, talking about, uh, you know, introduce yourself and however you'd like to, and then uh, talk about how, uh, what your symptoms were like uh, and what, uh, how you came to be involved with understanding more about IBS. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Dr. Bradshaw, for inviting me today to speak about IBS. I've been speaking about IBS for over 20 years. Happy to share my story. Uh, with me, it actually started as uh, a child. I was under 10 years old and I was constantly complaining of abdominal pain, sometimes diarrhea, sometimes constipation, sometimes, you know, waking up and bothering my parents and having to use the bathroom a lot, not feeling very comfortable about it. Um, that's kind of how it started, but I didn't really start to deal with it until I was a teenager. And I then started seeing a lot of different gastroenterologists to try and understand what was going on. And what I kept hearing was they were saying that I had a nervous stomach. Uh, that was kind of a common term at the time. But for me, as a, as a young person, a nervous stomach made me think that I was the cause of my symptoms. I was the cause of it. And uh, somehow I could control this. Well, I literally had no control over this. Um, it was very distressing. Uh, my mother was very confused by it. Around 16 or 17, I was formally diagnosed with lactose intolerance, and I thought, okay, I can't digest milk products. I'll stay away from those, and that will clear up my condition completely. That didn't clear up my condition completely. Still very difficult 
you know, wasn't able to participate uh, with my friends on outings and things like that, uh, you know, activities when you're in high school and so forth. Eventually went to college and had a really, really struggled there. And I thought, I want to do something about this. So I started heading to the medical library and doing research. This was long before um, there were very good online access to tools to, to do searches. So in the medical library, I was looking up papers related to irritable bowel syndrome. And I was finding the doctors and the researchers and the investigators across the country who were doing research. And I started to reach out to them uh, and find out what they were doing. And the, the real turning point was I learned that there was something called uh, grand rounds, which is when uh, a visiting physician comes to a, uh, a center, a medical center and presents information related to a disease or treatment or perhaps a surgical treatment. In this case, it happened to be IBS and it was being presented by one of the uh, thought leaders or um, key opinion leaders who was talking about IBS. So I actually, you know, here I was a student in college. I made my way into the room and just kind of hid in the back with a bunch of doctors in white coats and so forth and listened to the lecture. And I went up to him at the end of it and I told him that I was a patient and that I really wanted to make a change in other people's lives because I'm still suffering with IBS. I'm doing everything I can do. I want to learn more about it. And that's where I kind of got involved in my early advocacy work. Um, I then launched a, a website uh, for IBS sufferers. And at the time, I was literally the only website on the internet talking about irritable bowel syndrome, uh, dealing with patients. And we started to learn things from each other, uh, but primarily we were interested in what was actually happening, who was producing treatment options for IBS. And we started to then get connected with some pharmaceuticals who were doing some work. And there, and there were no drugs that were formally approved for IBS. And that's when uh, I was approached by a number of members of my community, which is now uh, around you know, 50,000 or so members. Um, they approached me and they said there was this medication um, that they think will work. Um, it was brought onto the market by the Food and Drug Administration, so it was approved for use, but the drug was being taken off the market because there were very serious side effects. And so I wasn't familiar with the drug. I was familiar with it being approved, but I wasn't familiar with actually using it. So um, I became more familiar with it and we organized uh, a group of individuals to actually go to Washington and testify at the Food and Drug Administration as to why we felt this medication should be on the market still. And uh, after uh, we met, the advisory committee meeting takes it back to the FDA. The FDA then makes a decision and the drug actually came back on the market, but it was provided under what's called restricted access. This really launched my whole advocacy work because my community now grew very, very large. I was now seeing 200 to 300,000 people coming through my community on a monthly basis. So I continued trying to do more research. I started then attending uh, various medical conferences. So there's a medical conference related to digestive disease called Digestive Disease Week. It's an annual event with about 15,000 uh, physicians from around the world. And I started attending that as a patient and I was there all by myself as a patient, but I started learning and understanding how to read um, research and, and clinical studies and so forth. And what I was doing is I was taking all the information that I was learning from these conferences and I was bringing it back to my group and trying to educate 
patients so that they could better understand how they might treat themselves, what treatments would be coming, and how they could then speak to their physicians about what they were feeling. Because half of the problem really is trying to have your physician understand what your quality of life is like suffering with IBS. So if you're not familiar with IBS itself, I mean, yes, it, it's the abdominal pain and constipation and diarrhea, but it changes. It's, it kind of waxes and wanes. It's not consistent. Uh, some days are very good. Some days are not very good. Uh, there are various treatments that are available now for it. And it's, it's made it a lot easier for a lot of people. Um, the next thing that happened was the internet kind of changed. Uh, and it became much more social. So now you have the Facebooks, you have the Twitters, you have the Instagrams, and now you have TikToks. And that allowed me to launch even more activities. So I'm now involved in both my website, which is ibspatient.org, which has a small community on it. But I'm very involved in Facebook with a patient group. I'm involved on Twitter um, and well recognized by other physicians who are doing research related to IBS. And I also have something called Tuesday Night IBS, where once a month we bring on a physician and we talk about different treatments for IBS. And then a few years ago, I launched something called World IBS Day. So that's kind of my story in terms of how I got involved in advocacy. And it's I can go into a lot more detail, but I think that's probably good for now. Yeah, that's very helpful. You've become you sort of professionalized almost being an advocate, taking the role of your own suffering, your own experience of pain, um, and, uh, and, and brought it forward to really help benefit other people as well as uh, increase your own knowledge. Right. You also had told me that you have uh, IBD. Would you mind sharing and contrasting your experience with irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease? Certainly. So inflammatory bowel this disease. Is pretty, this is actually a pretty interesting kind of juxtaposition that you can bring to this from the patient side. We'll talk more about the advocacy. But... Uh, so inflammatory bowel disease is, is quite different than IBS, although sometimes the symptoms can be quite similar. Uh, but with IBD, you typically see inflammation uh, when you're uh, scoping somebody with a, a colonoscopy, sigmoidoscopy. Crohn's disease can be anywhere from your mouth, to, uh, you know, down to to the outside, and uh, ulcerative colitis is in your um, in your colon. Uh, for me, my Crohn's disease actually was uh, in became very inflamed at various times, which I wasn't really aware of. I thought I was having IBS flare-ups, but around the age of 40 years old, I had such a bad flare that I spoke to my gastroenterologist and I said, "You have to scope me right now." And he scoped me um, just with a sigmoidoscopy. So that's kind of a short scope through the, your, your descending colon, the last part of your colon and your rectum. And he found that I had inflammation and he was very puzzled. You know, where did this come from? So now I had to try and differentiate the different types of pain of IBS versus Crohn's disease. Now I responded quite well to the treatment for Crohn's disease. So that kind of went into remission. But the problem with IBD is you tend to have a lot of patients tend to have IBS like symptoms in between their flares of IBD. So flares being inflammation, visible inflammation. And so that was very, very challenging for me to, to try and figure this out. And I have to say, I was scoped probably twice a year in order to investigate whether my Crohn's was flaring or whether it was my IBS. And it typically always was the IBS. So it became very, very difficult to understand 
the difference, I, you know, as I'm older now and living with this for more years, I understand it better and I'm not as quick to say scope me. I'm more apt to wait it out or to increase my Crohn's medication in order to try and bring that under control. But the pain is uh, somewhat very, is very similar for me because IBS is really seen in your colon. Crohn's disease is normally in most people seen in what's called their terminal ileum, so at the end of the small bowel. For me, because both of these things were in the colon, it's extremely confusing. And even, you know, the doctor said to me that he, he was confused by it as well, uh, because you don't often see Crohn's disease in, in the descending colon in the rectum area. Uh, so I, I have kind of markers. I know uh, when my Crohn's is flaring by different types of symptoms, but very, very difficult. I mean, it, um, we had this conversation, um, I've had this conversation many times, people said, am I in the right bucket? I mean, am I an IBS patient or am I an IBD patient? And that was confusing as well. I do think that my IBS is far more severe than my IBD because my IBD has only flared twice um, since I was first diagnosed, whereas my IBS is something that it damages and ruins my quality of life, you know, at least once or twice a week, uh, you know, invades vacations and, and plans and, and so forth. My IBD does not do that. It's kind of a flare. It's kind of you put out the fire and then it's gone and then you're left with the IBS. You said that um, there's a difference in how we as physicians sort of hold these two conditions. And I wonder if you could speak more about that. Um, you said you actually, as you're saying now, you actually think it's harder for IBS patients than it is for IBD patients. Well, what are you talking about there? So harder in the sense that a lot of physicians um, will see IBS as a, a perhaps someone who may be anxious or someone who uh, may have mental issues. And so IBS seems to have this label because we really don't understand what IBS is. And what I've learned through my own advocacy is actually IBD individuals, IB, IBD patients also have the same uh, issues related to anxiety and, and mental health issues related to their condition but because they have a more severe condition where they have inflammation and you need to actually manage it, it's IBD is seen as a more serious illness. Yet the quality of life of somebody with IBS and IBD are, are quite similar. Um, so we have, you know, when I'm counseling and speaking to a lot of patients, I often hear from them that doctors can be very dismissive of their issues. And it seems to be, um, that it's more dismissive of women who complain of these uh, problems with, with abdominal pain and constipation and or diarrhea. And IBS is tend in, in kind of a Western culture to be seen more in women than in men. So doctors get the feeling that, you know, maybe this is a women's illness and it's not. In fact, when you look at the epidemiology, so when you look at the number of patients worldwide, it's kind of equal between um, men and women. Um, however, more women tend to see their physicians in kind of Western culture than men. And that's why more women are diagnosed with IBS, you know, in the U.S. and in Canada, in Britain, Australia, and so forth. But when you start to look at Asia, 
more men actually see their physician than women and they're diagnosed with IBS more so than women. So it's, it is confusing. Um, and I have to say what happens is, you know, a patient will say they have these symptoms of IBS, a family doctor will worry that they may have something else. So they'll send them to a gastroenterologist. Gastroenterologist will see them, will review them, and they may perhaps even scope them. But then they'll say they have IBS and then they'll kind of just leave them on their own they'll send them back to their family doctor. So these patients are not really being followed. Whereas people with inflammatory bowel disease are constantly being followed by the gastroenterologist and taken very seriously when they might have a flare. So there is a bit of a difference. It's, it's difficult for people with IBS. Um, I'm certainly trying to change that with World IBS Day, trying to raise awareness about IBS and trying to understand the quality of life issues. Um, it, it can be, you know, so difficult for people with IBS that they never leave their home. They can't work unless now you can work because you can do remote work. But before COVID, it was very difficult for them to actually work. You know, think of somebody on an assembly line who needs to use the bathroom more than somebody else. Um, they don't have that opportunity to do that. IBD patients actually have the same issue um, and their doctors tend to support them. You're now seeing gastroenterologists supporting more IBS patients when it comes to work and you know life balance situation and helping you know write letters and so forth but it's still very difficult we're kind of still back we, we've got to go forward we need to understand what ibs uh, the cause is you've worked hard to create I, ibs day what are you um what what do you see as the trajectory of that what do you think the con the impact of that will be well so I'm, there, it's twofold. One is, I mean, certainly I'm thinking of the patient and I want the patient to be able to know that uh, there's a day that they can talk about their, their illness. They feel that it's out there in the public. It's, it's something that, um, you know, can validate what they have. Uh, and so that's why I created it. But what I also created it for was to support researchers, clinicians, people doing investigations, uh, pharmaceuticals who are funding, you know, new drug development is to show them that there are patients who are interested in the work that they are doing. I mean, I learned that, I think the first time that I went to the FDA, you know, we didn't go to just to the FDA to have our drug back. We wanted to show what are called sponsors. So pharmaceuticals to the FDA are referred to as sponsors. We wanted to show the sponsors that patients really demanded some treatment options. And so, I've been very, very involved in kind of all the new types of work that's happening related to IBS. So recently you now see cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a psychologist doing therapy with patients. Uh, that is now FDA approved for IBS and also hypnotherapy. Uh, so gut directed hypnotherapy is now approved for IBS. I mean, these are valid treatments. Why they work, we don't really understand, but we don't really understand why a lot of medications work as well. We just know they work. So you know, we'll try and figure out why they're working, but we want to support. We want to show World IBS Day supporting the work that people are doing. When you talk to uh, patients about the balance between sort of this idea of a gut-brain disorder uh, and the impact upon of stress and emotions on IBS, um, how do you find you are effective in making that that pitch without um, without somehow dismissing 
the experience of the patient as being all in their heads, psychological. Well, those are those are perfect words, actually, because uh, what I hear from a lot of patients is that doctors will say that IBS is all in their heads. And in fact, they may not be completely wrong. So there was some research that was done uh, in the 90s and, and early 2000 that showed that by controlling the level of serotonin in your gut, not in your brain, so we know that a lot of the medications, the antidepressants, are used to control serotonin uh, to, to ha uh, manage mood, but there's actually more serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain. And so there are, the first two drugs that came out for IBS were used to control the levels of serotonin in your gut by um, reducing the amount of serotonin uh, you help people with diarrhea, and by increasing the amount of serotonin, you um, helped constipation. So the work that was done started to focus on what's called this brain-gut axis. And so the, the early thinking was that perhaps somebody, an IBS patient, had a, a serious uh, gastrointestinal um, uh, infection at some point, and somehow your gut is remembering what that state was like when it was infected and it's sending signals to the brain and the brain is sending signals like i'm in distress i need to manage this and for people with diarrhea that might be i have you know constant uh, loose stool and diarrhea and so that's what the early work that was happening with this brain gut access so now there's they've actually changed um the category of uh, ibs as a, an illness, it used to be called a functional GI disorder, meaning that we can't actually find a cause, but we know there's something there. It, whereas IBD, you actually see inflammation. With, with uh, functional GI disorders, when you scope them, you don't see any inflammation, but yet the patient is suffering. Now they're actually talking, it is um, disorder, disorders of the gut-brain uh, interaction. And so that change is helping, helping patients understand a little bit better that there may be some interaction that's going on with the brain. We still don't understand it. There's a lot of work being done on, you know, looking at the brain and what changes are happening in the brain when, when patients are feeling abdominal pain. Um, so patients, that seems to better resonate with patients now, more so than it's all in your head. We now have a better understanding of what this whole gut-brain axis is, is doing. And, and there are new medications that are focused on this gut-brain axis. And that's where the cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnotherapy come into play as well. I have to say they're very, very new and, and patients are having a hard time kind of understanding how therapy might help my gut or how hypnotherapy might help my gut. I, I just as an aside, I can tell you that I've done both CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, and I've done hypnotherapy for the gut. And in fact, they do um, have an effect on my quality of life. It's it's definitely managing pain uh, with CBT and hypnotherapy is a very, very useful tool for me anyways. And I am hoping that some other patients will realize that and give it a try as well. That's great. I really appreciate you talking and sharing so much of your own story and, uh, and your advocacy journey. Uh, are there other things that you wanted to add uh, in? And then I'll turn it over to the students and see if they have any questions or my colleague, Dr. Baraveld. Um, I just want to say that, you know, I do hear from a lot of very, very distressed people who, as I was saying, have their quality of life, does they don't have a, a very good quality of life. 
And some of the problem is their family doesn't even understand the difficulties that they're encountering on a daily basis. Um, they see them as being, you know, lazy or they're just not carrying their weight. And um, I think that's why a lot of patients do reach out to these support groups is because they can't really find somebody who understands what they're doing. So what I used to do very, very early on is I actually used to do phone support. I would give out my phone number and people would actually call me and I would hear mostly from women and they would say, I've never told anybody this before. I've never talked about, you know, people don't really talk about their bowels. I mean, I talk about constipation and diarrhea all day, so it's nothing to me, but a lot of people aren't very comfortable talking about that. And so I felt very good that they had somebody that they could speak to. And I think that's where I felt my advocacy work really, really helps is letting patient, patients, you know, let me validate what they're actually feeling and let's see if I can help them sort it out and have a better conversation with the physician. I'll say one other thing is I never diagnose anybody. Um, I always just kind of give them the information and I want them to take it back to their own doctor and have that conversation. I don't want, I don't, you know, offer, say a, a particular treatment will work for somebody. I, I don't want to uh, favor any particular treatment over another. I'm just making the information available. And I think that's really important about who a patient advocate is versus somebody who is an influencer. An influencer might be, well, might be making products available. I don't do that. I'm strictly about the patient and trying to help the patient uh, have a better quality of life. Thank you. That's a, a good, it's a good collaboration with uh, the physicians and dietitians and psychologists and others who are working in the space with this condition. Now, IBS is a very common disease and disorder. Um, you, there are people in this room who probably have IBS. There are people who uh, it may be in your family with IBS or other abdominal kinds of pain that are chronic. And so I welcome that into this space as well. Any questions for Jeff? I can say that, you know, it's a very good point. Uh, they say 10 to 15%, even 10 to 20% of uh, the nation suffer from IBS. And, and that's kind of, we've, we're seeing those numbers worldwide as well. So there's a lot of people, you know, when you visit worldibsday.org, I actually show, you know, the percentage of people, if you've got 7 billion people in the world, you know, at least 700 million are actually suffering from IBS. So it's a very, very large number. And um, yes, I agree. There's probably people in this room who definitely have symptoms that they can identify with IBS. Yeah, this is my colleague who's a pain management physician, Dr. Baraveld. Hi, I'm Antia. I no. actually have a mother who's in the hospital right now. She has chronic IBS, and maybe you've seen her Facebook support group. <laughs> um, so I'll introduce you both otherwise. Um, and uh, unfortunately, she's also, she's been struggling her whole life um, with chronic abdominal pain and IBS. I'm describing my speaker. Um, I think she's a scientist. She's um, uh, an immunologist and, and basic cancer researcher from Philadelphia. and. Uh, she retired early because of her chronic abdominal pain. And one of the things that I think has been hard for her is as a researcher, she sometimes finds herself feeling like she maybe knows more than all of the GI doctors combined um, because there seems to be so little that's taught in medical school 
really, or, or maybe it's because we don't have the drugs or we don't have a good handle on nutrition or we don't necessarily understand cognitive behavioral therapies outside of drugs as well because it's the way we sort of teach about uh, the GI system. What advice do you have for our medical students about sort of what they can do to, to uh, or maybe the, the pitfalls, why is it that a gastroenterologist will send you back to a primary care doctor? What do you think are the tools that we're, we're missing as physicians and whatever specialty we go into when it comes to helping support the 20% of the population that has these symptoms? Well, you raise a very good point. Uh, one thing I didn't actually touch on was diet. And uh, in the last 10 years or so, um, there's a diet that was developed in Australia called the low FODMAP diet. FODMAP is an acronym for a bunch of sugars. And uh, so dietitians have now become involved in treatment for IBS. So, it, it, you know, you bring it back to the gastroenterologist. Gastroenterologists really have no expertise at all in diet and food. Uh, and so they're not the right people to ask. But it's very difficult to actually find a gastroenterologist who works closely with a dietitian that, that, that they can be referred to who may be familiar with the low FODMAP diet. So that's, that's difficult. And I have to say, you're absolutely correct also that um, doctors are not really exposed to IBS uh, in training because there's just so much that you have to learn. I think if you know, the people in this room can just walk away with an understanding of the quality of life issues and have that conversation with patients and not necessarily dismiss symptoms and realize that their quality of life is, is really suffering, even though it seems very benign and they're not going to, you know, die from it. Um, they're not able to live their life. They're not able, like your mother, she has to leave her research before she wanted to. Um, you know, I had a career in technology and IT, but I struggled with that. I was very upfront with everybody that I worked with and let them know what my illness was and it was going to be difficult and I was going to leave and not come in some days. And some were very good and some were not, but I was not able to have the full career that I wanted because I don't think people really understood it and, and they dismissed it. So if any, if you walk away from you know, my uh, conversation today, it's that there is a quality of life issue with every illness and it's not something to be necessarily dismissed. It's something to remember in the back of your mind that I do remember this guy talking about IBS early on in my, you know, training. And um, it's all about how do you speak to your patients and, and understand that they are suffering and they're coming to you because they want help. They're not coming to you to bother you. They really just want to live a better quality of life and their family wants them to have a better quality of life too because they don't know how to help them. So that's the message. Thank you. So it's almost, you know, making sure that we give something a name once it's been ruled out that there isn't anything else going on that could be treated like inflammatory bowel disease with other medications that we validate the symptoms that someone is having. Um, I think uh, hopefully there will be more research and the sort of um, that microbiome and you know that mind body access, but the awareness is so important for us as physicians and as student physicians to sort of validate the experience and so that the patient feels like they're, they're believed. Um, I think um, one thing that 
I do do, even though I'm not a dietitian, is I, I do have websites that I point patients to because a lot of times nutritionists that are getting me out of pocket. And so there's um, there's a financial constraint that I see with some of my patients that you can't just see a nutritionist, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of the nutritionists, traditional nutritionists, are really looking at malnutrition right. and not necessarily educated also in the sort of other dietary ways. But there's sort of really awesome research around different types of diets, like the low FODMAP diet, that can really change people's quality of life. So that is an important thing. But there are online resources that we can point our patients to as we have them. I want to thank you, Jeff, for uh, being so uh, articulate and to really sharing so much about uh, your experience and, and really that kind of growth that you've had as an advocate and all the roles you've had. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure to share my story with, with your uh, class and, and with both of you as well.